0: So this is going to be an interesting few weeks. You know, hopefully it's nothing you would notice with your ears, but I'm doing the show under battlefield conditions for the next few weeks. I'll explain more, but I'm in the process of relocation. Thankfully, I have a little portable studio so I can do this because, gosh darn it, I have important things to talk about and things to share with you. And it's important that you and I each have a chance to own our worldview and think clearly and independently about what's going on around us. Now, none of that means that you have to agree with me in any way, shape, or form. I wouldn't demand that of you. That would be absolutely antithetical to everything I believe about freedom of conscience, about the the nature of personal liberty. And also the the whole idea that, you know, you are, are so pathetic, you need someone to tell you, hey, here's what you need to think. Now, obviously, there are other folks out there who don't see things this way. In fact, there are folks out there who think not only do you need someone to tell you what to think, but they need to tell you when to wipe your nose and when to sit up straight and eat your vegetables and things like that. And it goes a lot further, but you probably already realize that. So nonetheless, I'm glad you're part of the audience today. Here we are fast moving through the month of May. It is May 24th, and on tap today, we're going to talk about a few things. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about the new normal, a phrase which I'm sure most of you are sick of, as I am. (laughs) <laughs> but we're going to talk a little bit about it. And one of the things that I wanted to start off with was something that has hammered more people than the coronavirus over this last year. And, and I like that it's being compared to a virus. It's the virus of learned helplessness. Now, maybe you've heard that phrase before. Maybe you've given it some thought. But I want you to consider what Peter Van Buren has to say. This is a terrific article on how we've been gradually trained to stop fighting back to stop standing up for ourselves and it's it's not like you know I, I wouldn't necessarily say that you know every person who teaches this this learned helplessness is necessarily out to enslave you but think about in in school as a kid if you attended public school something you learned very early on <clears throat> is that nothing happens without permission right the bell rings okay we know it's time to stand up and go to the next place or time to start the class or time to start you know whatever recess. You have a question. You have an answer. Boom! Your hand better go in the air. Now, this is fine when it comes to keeping order. But along the way, we end up getting trained to believe that, you know, if something's going on, if especially if something is going wrong, none of us have permission. None of us have the capacity to do what an expert, by which I mean somebody in a uniform or a suit and tie with some official title or perhaps uh, in a lab coat, is telling us about. So this is an article from Peter Van Buren from the American conservative. The other lear- the other virus learned helplessness. And he asks, what is a culture of compliance and ever shifting rules doing to us? He asks, why would any American allow the government to deny him a final goodbye to the person who raised him? Why would anyone allow grandma to die untouched in a hospital room without fighting back in the post-vaccination era? Why don't people remove their masks? And his answer is, it's learned helplessness, employed as a control tool. Now, learned helplessness, Peter Van Buren says, is well documented. It takes place when an individual believes he continuously faces a negative, uncontrollable situation and stops trying to improve his circumstances, even when he has the ability to do so. Discovering the loss of control elicits a passive reaction to a harmful situation. Apparently, psychologists call this maladaptive response, characterized by the avoidance of challenges and the collapse of problem-solving when obstacles arise. In other words, you give up trying to fight back. So, here's an example to help illustrate this. You have to keep up with the ever-changing mask and other hygiene theater rules, many of which make no sense, like mask in the gym, but not the pool. Mask when going to the restaurant toilet, but not your table. New York City hotels are closed while Vegas casinos are open. Disney California closed while Florida Disney was open. And you're expected to comply. Now, you could push back, but you've been made afraid at a core level. I mean, forget about yourself, rascal. You're going to kill grandma if you don't do what we say. So what do you do? Well, largely, you just give in. Once upon a time, we were told a vaccine would end it all. Yet the restrictions remain largely in place. And you're left believing nothing will fix this. Helpless to resist, you comply out of an abundance of caution. Now, I'm going to stop right here for just a moment and just let you know. Look, I'm not pointing a finger at you and saying, yeah, what he said, you're doing all these things. Because I have been guilty of them myself. And I'm not saying that everything where, you know, you run crosswise or whatever the official policy is, is the hill that you should necessarily die on. We we have to choose our battles carefully if not for our own well-being, for the sake of of winning the hearts and minds of people around us to to whatever principle it is that we wish to, you know, to demonstrate or to, to stand up for. Back to the article, Peter Van Buren says American psychologists Martin Seligman and Stephen Meyer created the term learned helplessness in 1967. Now, they were studying animal behavior by delivering electric shocks to dogs this was a simpler time dogs who learned they couldn't escape the shock the shock rather simply stopped trying even after the scientists removed a barrier and the dog could have jumped away learned helplessness has three main features a passive response to trauma disbelief that trauma can be controlled and stress so as example you're being stalked by a killer disease which often has no outward symptoms There's nothing you can do but hide inside and buy things from Amazon. The government failed to stop the virus initially, failed to warn you, failed to supply ventilators and PPE gear, and failed to produce a vaccine quickly enough. You may die. You may kill your family members along the way. You've lost your job by government decree. You're forced to survive on unemployment and the odd stimulus check. Manufactured dependence. And this is all very real. WebMD saw a 251% increase in searches for anxiety. This past April. Americans with their cult-like devotion to victimhood are prime for learned helplessness. Your problems are because you're a person of color or fat or you're on some spectrum. You're not responsible. You can't fix something so systemic. So you better do what you're told. So what's the way out? Well, Peter Van Buren says the way out is to allow people to make decisions and choices on their own. This therapy is used with victims of learned helplessness such as uh, hostages. He says during their confinement, all the important decisions of their life and most of the minor ones were made by their captors. Upon release, many hostages fear simple things like meal choice. They have to be coaxed out of their helplessness one micro-choice at a time. Here's another example. You cannot choose where to stand, so follow the marks on the floor. Ignore the research saying three feet apart is as useful or useless as six feet apart. Don't think about why the rules are the same inside a narrow hallway and outside in fresh air, but don't apply on all airplanes. Kin to learned helplessness are enforcers. Suddenly your waitress transitions from someone serving you into someone ordering you to wear a mask, sit alone, eat outside, etc. Flight attendants morph from delivering drinks to holding the power to have security haul you to jail for unmasking when not actively eating Companies once run by entrepreneurs are today controlled by the harassment stalking undead from HR. I like this phrase, we become a republic of hall monitors, and there it is, the wrong people are in charge. Now one of the better examples of learned helplessness can be seen in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, a great book made into an impressive movie starring a lean Jack Nicholson. Nurse Ratched cows a group of mentally ill men into complete learned helplessness, encouraging them to rat out each other for small offenses and to follow her every order, no matter how absurd. The kicker comes near the end when we learn that all of the men, except Nicholson, are free to leave the hospital at any time. They just can't. It's amazing how fast people have stepped into the Nurse Ratched role. Within moments of COVID's arrival in the national conscience, officials like California's Gavin Newsom and New York's Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio raced to assume fat emergency powers. They spent not one moment assessing the impact of their decisions to lock down against the effects of the lockdown. They ignored information questioning the value of lockdown. They turned topsy-turvy the idea that in a free society, the burden of proof is on those who would restrict freedom and not on those who would resist such restrictions and they were aided in manufacturing learned helplessness by the most sophisticated propaganda operation ever created. Already engorged with the coin of three years of fake news, the legacy media saw the value of a new crisis in working toward their two real goals, making as much money as possible garnering clicks and defeating Donald Trump. Now, previous shows, Russiagate with a hat tip to 9-11 when Americans demanded fewer freedoms to feel safer illustrated the way. On a 24-7 basis, Americans were injected with the message, you are helpless and Donald, COVID, Trump will kill you. Your only hope is to comply fully with the people at CNN who are administering the electric shocks. I got to hit the pause button here because we're coming up on the break, but we're going to come back to Peter Van Buren's excellent article here in just a few moments. The other virus learned helplessness. My goal here is not to make you mad. It's not to make you fearful. Well, maybe it's to make you a little bit bothered but just enough that you step up and start taking ownership of some things in your life that you could have taken ownership for all along. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our program brought to you in part today by HSLAmmo.com, MonticelloCollege.org, and, of course, of course, the good folks at uh, Pure-Light.com. I've thoughtfully included links to each of these sponsors in the show notes, which you'll find at the TheBrianHydeShow.com. I hope you'll check them out. So I'm sharing this article from Peter Van Buren, The Other Virus Learned Helplessness. And I think the examples he's using are are legit. You you can still disagree. I'm not going to think you're a bad person if you do, but these are some pretty convincing things, and it's something that I know I've been observing very closely for the last year or so. Something else he points out that rang especially true is how truth is useless to propagandists. In fact, they actually tend to view it as a threat. Now, think about this for just a moment. How many times have you gone to post something or seen something posted on Social media, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, that has the obligatory, well, you know, our fact checkers have checked this out because it contains information about COVID. And, you know, they're trying to keep people steered into a particular narrative. It's Look, it's propaganda. There can be good propaganda, there can be bad propaganda, but this is definitely propaganda in that it seeks to support a narrative and to stifle any points of view that might question or otherwise look beyond just that simple narrative. Something Peter Van Buren points out is we never ran out of ventilators or personal protection equipment or nurses or ICU beds or morgues. Masks are not needed outdoors. We did, in fact, develop a vaccine, several for that matter, in less than a year. Almost everyone who died was elderly or had serious comorbidities. In other words, a distinct class of people but we salivated over new case numbers as the primary metric anyway because they went up so much faster. When people questioned the real-world view against the media portrayal, then they were told about asymptomatic COVID or shunned as hoaxers. Now, he's realistic here. He says, look, everyone makes mistakes, but just as with Russiagate, all the media mistakes swung one way. That should be a bit of a red flag, don't you think? It worked by the way. Condo boards boarded up their gyms. Restaurants forced diners to eat outside in the rain. Entire industries like tourism and hospitality disappeared overnight. New groups were shoved into poverty and unemployment. Children were denied education. Criminals released from jails. People were told, don't hug your loved ones. Don't celebrate birthdays. Don't attend church. We were told to fear our neighbors as potential carriers. And every time dissenting information popped up, like Florida opening its beaches for spring break for example the media rushed in to declare everyone is going to die Texas was declared dead South Dakota was declared dead and Americans believed it all even when reports of survivors started drifting out of Disney World Peter van Buren says Americans are not comfortable accepting that their lives are being manipulated at this level the way many Russians assume the way the I'm sorry For example, many Russians assume it to be so. We tend to dismiss such things as conspiracy theories and make an Oliver Stone joke. But he says, ask yourself, how many of the temporary security and surveillance measures enacted after 9-11 are still controlling our lives almost 20 years later? Is the terror threat still so real that the FBI needs to monitor our social media in bulk? For that matter, was it ever? Now, nothing nothing here is to say that vaccines don't work or are themselves dangerous. That's another debate. This is about the politics of mass control. Add up the doesn't really make sense, but we do it anyway, COVID rules, and try to make sense of them. Why else would otherwise smart leaders implement such rules? For example, in New York's case, purposely impoverishing a city or seeking to defund the police in the midst of triple-digit rises in crime? Every time, your answer is, it just doesn't make sense. Consider a scenario beyond coincidence where it would make sense, however out there that might be. And it might be the most important thing you can do. So Peter Van Buren says, look out the window. Remember 15 days to flatten the curve? With no voting or debate, a system based on a medical procedure capable of controlling our travel, which businesses we can visit, which hotels we can stay in, what jobs we can hold, what education we can access, at which point it is no more voluntary than breathing was put into place. He says, we no longer longer need to ask what's going to happen. Remember, the real question is always, why is this happening? That's a pretty good article. Again, this is from Peter Van Buren from the American Conservative. I'll have it posted in the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. Okay, the next thing I want to share with you, I'm going to offer a bit of a warning in that uh, this is a seemingly innocent question. But as I ask this, I want, I want you to pay close attention and see if a little chill goes up your spine. Are you ready? Is it possible to live without a computer of any kind? See, I saw the, I saw the headline, and I, and I read this article the other day, and, and I'm a little bit ashamed to admit, not only did the headline grab me because I was like, okay, that's something I really haven't considered, considering that everything I do seems to be computer-related. I'm talking about, you know, to make a living. But as I read this article, I felt honest-to-goodness anxiety. And I think that means there's, there's probably a problem here. The author is Andrew Trovoluski. And he asked, is it possible to live without a computer of any kind? Now, he starts out with some pretty familiar territory here. He says, look, I'm absolutely sick to death of computers. The blue light of a screen wakes me up in the morning. I stare at another computer on my desk for hours every day. I keep one in my pocket all the time, and that familiar too-bright glow is the last thing I see before I close my eyes at night. Lockdown undoubtedly made the problem worse, much worse. Last year, a nasty thought occurred to me. It might be the case that the majority of my memories for several months were synthetic, most of the sights and sounds I'd experienced for a long time had been simulated, so audio resonating out of a tinny phone speaker or video beamed into my eyes by a screen. He says, obviously I knew that my conscious brain could tell the difference between media and real life. But I began to wonder whether I could be so sure about my subconscious. In short, I began to suspect that I was going insane. And so Andrew travoluski says, I asked myself, if it was possible to live in the modern world without a computer of any kind. Now that means no smartphone, no laptop, no TV, which I'm sure has a computer in it somewhere. Of course, it's possible to survive without a computer, provided that you have an income independent of one. But that wasn't really the question. The question was whether it's possible to live a full life in a developed country without one. So I guess he put it to the test. Here's what he reports. He says right away, Upon getting rid of my computers, my social life ground to a halt. Unable to go to the pub or a club, my phone allowed me to feel like I was at least on the periphery of my friends' lives while they were all miles away. This was hellish, but I realized it was the real state of my life. My phone acted as a pacifier and my friendships were holograms. No longer built on the foundation of experiences shared on a regular basis... Social media was a way for me to freeze-dry my, my friendships, preserve them so they could be revived at a later date. With lockdown over, though, this becomes less necessary. They can be reheated, and my social life can be taken off digital life support. I would lose contact with some people, but as I said, these would only be those friendships kept perpetually in suspended animation. Now, these days, large parts of education, too, take place online. It's not uncommon now in universities, colleges, and secondary schools for work and timetables to be found online or for information to be sent to pupils via internet email at networks. Remote education during lockdown was no doubt made easier by the considerable infrastructure already in place. And then there's the question of music. No computers would mean a life lived in serene quiet, traveling and working without background sound to hum or tap one's foot to. An inconvenience maybe, but not... But he says, perhaps not altogether, a negative one. Sir Roger Scruton spoke about the intrusion of mass-produced music into everyday life. Computer-produced tunes are playing at low-level in shopping centers and restaurants, replacing the ambient hum and chatter of human life with banal pop music. Okay, I don't disagree with him there. Scruton believed the proper role of music was to exalt life, to enhance and to make clear our most heartfelt emotions. Music today, though, is designed to distract from the dullness of everyday life or paper over awkward silences at social events. In fact, he went so far as to say that pop consumption had an effect on the musical ear comparable to that of pornography on sex. Okay, well, there's a good note to end on. We'll come back to it in just a few moments. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Sharing this excellent article from Andrew Travoluski. And I say excellent in the sense that this one really knocked the wind out of my sails. Because he dares ask the question, is it possible to live without a computer of any kind? And I understand, this is kind of ironic. I'm discussing this and and sharing this with you and asking you to consider it, even as I'm using a computer to uh, record and produce and post this content but uh, here we are, and I think he has some, some very valid points to consider. And, and this is one that hits home to me. Andrew Travoloski says, The biggest barrier, barrier rather is the use of the Internet for work. Many companies use online services to organize things like shift rotations and pay and holidays, and the entire professional world made the switch to email decades ago. How feasible is it to opt out of this? Short of becoming extremely skilled at something for which there's both very little supply and very high demand, then working for a band of eccentrics willing to accommodate my niche lifestyle, he says, I think it would be more or less impossible. Losing the computer would mean kissing the possibility of a career goodbye. Now, lockdown has also sped up the erosion of physical infrastructure required to live life offline as well as accelerated our transformation into a cashless society. On average, 50 bank branches have closed every month since January 2015. I didn't know that. With over 1,000 branch closures across the country in the last year alone. It seems to have wiped away the last remaining businesses that didn't accept card card payments. The high street, already kicking against the current for years, is presently being kept alive by Rishi Sunak's magic money tree, while Amazon records its best quarter for profits ever. It's no mystery to anyone which way history will go. He says, I'm lucky that my parents were always instinctively suspicious of screens. I didn't get a smartphone until a good way into secondary school, and I got my first and only games console at age 16. He says, I keenly remember getting a laptop for my birthday. I think my parents gave it to me in the hopes that I would become some kind of computing or coding genius. But he says, instead, I just played a lot of Sid Meier's Civilization 3." He says, my dad would remind me that nothing on the computer was real but that didn't stop me from getting addicted to games. If it wasn't for my parents' strong interventions, I would likely have developed a serious problem, sucked into the matrix and doomed to spend my youth in my bedroom with the blinds down. So he says, all this year, I've wrestled with my media addiction but have been unable to throw it off. I told my friends that I was taking a break from social media, deactivated my Twitter account, physically hid my phone from myself under the bed, and yet, here I am, writing this on my laptop for an online publication. He says, when I got rid of my phone, I turned to my computer to fill the time. When I realized that the computer was no better, I tore myself from it, too, and spent more time watching TV. I tried reading and made some progress, but the allure of instant reward always pulled me back. Now, he says, I'm not a completely helpless creature, though. On several occasions, I cast my digital shackles into the pit, only to find that I needed Internet access for business that was more important than my Luddite hissy fit. Once I opened the computer up for business, it was only a matter of time before I would be guiltily watching Netflix and checking my phone again. It's too easy. I know all the shortcuts. I can be on my favorite time-absorbing website at any time in three or four keystrokes. Besides, getting rid of my devices meant losing contacts with my friends, with whom contact was on thin ground already. So unplugging really meant facing the horrific isolation of lockdown without dummy entertainment devices to distract me. So determined was I to live in the 17th century that I went a good few weeks navigating my house and reading late at night by candlelight rather than turning on those hated LEDs. See, this is where this is where I started to get concerned because when he described that, there was a part of me that went, ooh, I think that actually sounds like a good thing. Reading books by candlelight. I know. I should probably get help. And yet, uh, Andrew Travoluski says... The digital world is tightening around us all the time. Year-on-year, relics of our past are replaced with internet-enabled gadgets connected to a worldwide spiderweb of content that has us wrapped up like flies. And whenever I've mentioned this, he says, I've been met with derision and scorn and told to live my life in the woods. But he says, I don't want to live alone in the woods. I want to live a happy and full life, the kind of life that everyone lived just fine until about the 90s. I'm sick of the whir and whine of my laptop, of my nerves being raw from overuse, of always keeping one ear open for a ping or a pop from my phone, and of the days lost mindlessly flicking from one app to the other. Computers have drastically changed the rhythm of life itself. Things used to take certain amounts of time, and so they used to take place at certain hours of the day. They were impacted by things like distance and weather. Now so much can occur instantaneously, irrespective of time or distance, and independent from the physical world entirely. Put simply, less and less of life today takes place in real life. By the way, that one felt like a gut punch when I read it. How much of your life is taking place in real life and not on the computer? Andrew Travolosky says, The, computer, the world of computers rather is all I've known and yet I find myself desperately clawing at the walls for a way out. He says it's crazy to think that something so complex and expensive, a marvel of human engineering, can become so necessary in just a few decades. But he says if I can't get rid of my computers, I'll just have to learn to diminish their roles in my life as best I can. This is easier said than done, though. As the digital revolution marches on, more and more of life is moved online. The digital demons I'm struggling to keep at arm's length grow bigger and hungrier. He concludes by saying I'm under no illusions that it's possible to turn back the tide. Unfortunately, the digital revolution, like the industrial and agricultural revolutions before it, will trade individual quality of life for collective power. As agricultural societies swallowed up hunter-gatherers one by one before themselves being crushed by industrial societies, so those who would cling to an analog way of life will find themselves overmatched, outcompeted, and overwhelmed. Regardless, He says, I will continue with my desperate rearguard fight against history the same way English romantics struggled against industrialization. Hopeless my cause is, yes, but it's beautiful all the same. So just a couple thoughts that uh, that I'd like to add to um, Andrew Trovoloski's observations here. And this is something a friend pointed out to me some years ago, and this will make sense to some people, maybe not so much to others. But if you have something going on in the background, and I'm going I'm to talk primarily about music. If every car ride has to be filled with, i got to get something on the radio, some music, some talk, something, I'm going to suggest that you might be missing out on some of the most important things that the universe is trying to communicate to you. Now, for religious people, what I'm talking about is spiritual knowledge. It has a hard time reaching us. When we have music blurring in our ears. Now, some kind of music, you know, hymns and things like this can actually bring, you know, spiritual awareness into our lives. But for the most part, let's not pretend that, you know, I mean, come on. People who are driving around and a Cardi B song comes on the radio. I think if the universe was trying to convey some kind of spiritual message to you at that time, it's probably going to say, I'll come back later. You look like you might be busy. (laughs) So... I'm not suggesting that, uh, you know, you two join in the Luddite revolution and throw away everything technological in your life. But I am going to make this suggestion. Maybe you and I could do a better job of distinguishing between those, those things which are necessary. Like for for me, you know, creating a podcast and broadcast and writing and things like that that require us to be online. But still make time for some quiet. And I'm not saying that this is going to work for everybody, but I'll just tell you from personal experience, something that I have found very helpful, and this is is primarily applicable, times when I am actively seeking direction in my life. One of the best things that I have found to be able to do is to put my electronic devices away and to go spend some time in nature. I know, people are like, okay, here comes the Unabomber comparisons, but no, I'm talking about take a hike, go bird watching, something to get you away from that constant electronic vibe in your life, and and just, you know, if you're looking for direction, what I like to do is take something to write with a pad and paper, or I'm sorry, a pad of paper and a pencil, and I'll start to just jot down things that I'm observing. It's kind of stream of consciousness, but... Um, if, if I'm looking, like, if, for instance, if I'm looking for direction from God, one of the first things I'll do is I'll sit down and I'll, I'll write out for myself things that I observe that I believe you know, God has done or is doing in my life. And it's very fascinating how um, clarity seems to come from this exercise. I don't know any other way to describe it other than my personal antenna become recalibrated in a way that suddenly I'm aware of things and I hear things within my consciousness that I would not otherwise have picked up on. And so if, if you feel like, Brian, are you trying to make me into some kind of a mystic here? I don't know, not so much. Just, just trying to suggest that really we have so much electronic stuff going on around us at any time. Is it possible that we're missing out on some of the most important things we could be learning or engaging in or contemplating. I'm going to let you answer that question for yourself. I know how I would answer it. And for those who find this useful, you're welcome. For those who don't, please discard it. We'll see what we can come back to. And we have to take a quick break, so we'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, if you're finding value in this program, I would ask you to please visit my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Take a look at today's show notes if you'd like. I've got links to all the different articles that I'm sharing. You can check them out for yourself, share them with friends. And I'm going to ask you to consider subscribing to the podcast. And if you find value, this is kind of like a little tip jar sitting there on the counter, um, consider becoming a monthly patron. And and or supporter. The links are right there. You can check it out for yourself and make that decision. All right. Time to dive into a topic that is becoming more and more near and dear to my heart, and that is the gig economy. Now, I'm sure that most politicians mean, well, wink, wink, right? But this question keeps racing through my mind. Why on earth can't they just leave the gig economy alone? Got a great email from uh, everythingvoluntary.com, actually everything-voluntary.com. I subscribed to them some time ago. I'm never disappointed with the content that lands in my email inbox as a result. This is an article from Sheldon Richman. Biden Labor Department undermines gig economy. And he starts by asking, why should government at any level have the power to overrule how workers and companies define their relationships? This question has become more important than previously with the rise of the gig economy in which workers such as Uber and Lyft drivers are regarded by their companies and themselves as independent contractors rather than conventional employees. Now, the Biden administration thinks the central government, not private parties, ought to set the rules no matter what those parties want. So his Labor Department has canceled a Trump era rule that left this decision in the private sector. Why would they do this? Why, for the good of the workers, or so we're told. According to Labor Secretary Marty Walsh, by withdrawing the independent contractor rule, we will help preserve essential worker rights and stop the erosion of worker protections that would have occurred had the rule gone into effect. Too often, workers lose important wage and related protections when employers misclassify them as independent contractors. Boy, that's some, that's some good word salad from a bureaucrat right there. Uh, <laughs> Sheldon Richmond says, Among said protections are the minimum wage and overtime compensation under the National Fair Labor Standards Act. Now, Walsh also says the gig economy is inconsistent with the economic realities test and court decisions requiring a review of the totality of the circumstances related to the employment relationship. More word salad. That is, individual freedom must take a backseat to judicial and bureaucratic rules that interfere with freedom of association so what are the grounds for that assertion well walsh seems uninterested in the attraction that gig jobs obviously have for those who opt for them over conventional employment gig workers work when they want and have other leeway that hourly employees do not have does biden and walsh not care that these if these attractions disappear when they ban the gig arrangement How could that be good for workers who would lose options they now have and willingly chose? So whatever benefits gig workers give up, they apparently prefer what they get in return. Every choice in life has trade-offs. It's classic arrogance and paternalism when bureaucrats claim to know better what trade-offs should be made and then force their will on others. I should underline that sentence right there, because that's exactly what they're doing. We're just trying to help these workers and protect their essential rights and their essential worker benefits. No, you're not. You're simply using the power of government to force a collective solution into a place where not everybody even has a problem. See, work is a voluntary arrangement. I don't know if uh, if most people have forgotten this or not, but nobody marches you at uh, bayonet point into a potential employer's place. Here, you will apply for a job. Sign paper. Sign paper. Begin working. No. You scout out a job or maybe a job comes looking for you and uh, an exchange takes place, a negotiation. Are you willing to do these services in return for this pay? You weigh it out and if it's agreeable, sure, yeah, I'll do that. If not, nope. You are absolutely free to move on and find other opportunities. They can't draft you. But by getting government involved in this way, yeah, this is taking a lot of those choices away because then government uh, binds the hands of the employers. I'm sorry, guys, but we have to do this. You're going to lose some of these benefits because government says we have to cover this other stuff. So, you know, the good news is uh, we can't uh, give you more. um, I'll I'll use the example. I worked for a company once that had, I thought, a really unique idea. Mad hours. Every single employee at this company got mad hours, 40 of them a year. MAD standing for make a difference. That means you had a full week of paid leave. The only caveat was you had to use that time to, to be doing something. And so I would, uh, I would help with the scouts at scout camp during that week. But the cool thing about it was I was getting paid. And I thought that was a marvelous incentive. Not only, you know, to, to, to continue working hard for this company. And it was a great company to work for. But uh, to continue looking for ways to, to benefit and, and to reach out to the people around me, in this case, you know, the Boy Scouts. But you take those things away. And so, okay, we had to take away the mad hours, but hey, if anybody needs, you know, gender reassignment surgery, well, the government's mandated, we have to cover that. So, you know, huh, at, least, at least you got that going for you. Now back to Sheldon Richmond's article. He says Walsh mercifully says that in a lot of cases, why not all cases, gig workers should be classified as employees. But Sheldon Richmond asks why should it, why should bureaucrats have the power to decide which cases those will be? In 2019, the California legislature passed and the governor signed a law to make classifying workers as independent co- contractors tougher. Companies like Uber and Lyft managed to get a proposition on the 2020 ballot and Californians voted 58 to 42 percent to exempt some workers, particularly drivers for companies like Uber, which claim they're technology companies, not employers of drivers. In other words, they provide not transport service, but the technological infrastructure in which drivers and riders can find and coordinate with each other. Technology stimulates innovations in the production and distribution of goods and services. Innovations that, by definition, defy old forms. And he says, as long as innovative firms get no favors from government, they must satisfy customers in order to thrive. So if the well-being of all concerned is the priority, then he says we should reject a regulatory regime in which innovation requires the permission of bureaucrats before it can be tried. Do we really want bureaucracies overseeing our lives? He also says, keep in mind that an innovation will often be opposed by people who are invested in the old ways of doing things. Taxi companies are notoriously protected oligopolies, if not monopolies in most places. Existing companies enjoy shelter from competition, for example. Often they can veto applications by aspiring competitors, making the limited number of existing licenses highly valuable. Gig firms challenge the old form by enabling riders and independent drivers, who may work for more than one company, to find each other through a mobile phone app. The revolution in taxi service has been a hit with consumers. People looking to make a living or even just supplement their income seem happy to have the option. And Sheldon Richmond concludes by saying anyone who holds individual freedom as a priority will wonder why anyone of good faith would want to hamper such innovations. Man, that is... That is so dead on, and I've I've watched this very closely. I mean, I've watched the the Uber war, the uh, the Lyft war. I don't know if you remember this, but it was it was just a few short years ago when these companies were fairly new, particularly to large cities. They would set up police sting operations. So if somebody was at the airport and they uh, they were trying to summon a Lyft driver, police would stand by and watch, and then pull people over. And if if it turns out, yep, that was a Lyft driver or an Uber driver picking somebody up from the airport, they'd issue him a citation. I know in Salt Lake City, it was you know upwards of $1,300, $1,400. This wasn't just a little $5 slap on the wrist. Stop it. No, they were like, you're going to feel the crushing weight. And it was the taxi companies that were like, hey, this isn't fair, man. You know, we, we pay good money for permission from the government to do our job. You should at least be making them suffer the way we are. I just wonder why people don't think, uh, you know, in terms of, hey, we're miserable. Instead of making them miserable like us, why don't you lighten the regulations so that we can innovate? For some reason, people seem to have a hard time thinking that way. I don't know what it is. It's the bucket of crabs, right? One crab starts getting out, the other crabs pull them back in. But here's the bottom line. You need that choice. You need that individual freedom. And the gig economy is not going to be for everybody. I'm Look, I'm a fairly recent entrant. I'm coming up on my one-year mark of being fully, 100%, standing with both feet in the gig economy. And the fact that it happened during COVID was both a blessing and also a little bit alarming. But I'm here to tell you, whatever inconveniences come with the, the gig economy and being an independent contractor, I'll take them. Something shifted in my mind over this past year. I don't think I could go back to being a full-time employee. I have much more flexibility. And the crazy thing is, I never even realized I was wearing a leash until somebody unclipped it. Thanks again for joining us. Check out the show notes at BrianHideshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.